0: Before we uh, have um, our Bible reading, um, I'm going to invite Colonel John Lewis to come up uh, and just want to take a, a moment to interview him. It's always good when we have a visitor, visiting speaker to, to find out a little bit about him and what he's been doing in his life, um, even if we can guess a little. Um, I wondered whether you could introduce yourself, uh, a bit about your, your family, and, uh, and that sort of thing.
1: Um. My name's John Lewis, um, some of my family are here, my wife Jeannie and my youngest son Tom are here, I have three chil- four children, three others, part of Tom, <laughs> <laughs> um, all grown up now, One's in Australia, all over the place. Um, Great, and, um, tell us a little bit about
0: how you became a Christian, how, what led you to that? Well,
1: um, like lots of these stories, it's a long story, but um, I was... Uh, brought up in a Christian family. My father actually became a Christian whilst he was serving in the RAF in World War II uh, through the witness of a friend. Um, So I was brought up in a Christian family. um, And I became a Christian, I would say, in my late teens after quite a long period of, um, I think, thinking that I wanted to make myself a better person, Uh, trying to turn over a new leaf time and time again and then failing miserably, as we do. Um, And I remember very much uh, coming across a verse in Jeremiah which says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And uh, that was a real turning point for me. I realized that actually my search for God had been quite half-hearted and um, was more about me um, than about him. And I realized that if I was going to find God, then I needed to really search with my whole heart. Um, so that, that was very meaningful for me, and um, I, I did become a Christian, committed my life to Christ, to following him, being a disciple of Christ, and um, I've sought to do that ever since, uh, through ups and downs, and uh, sometimes doubts and fears, but mm. uh, nevertheless, I've uh, gone on with that.
0: Thank you. That's, that's great. and. Uh, I think it would be good to know a little bit about your service history. How, I mean, how did you get into the army, and, what, and then what did you do? And...
1: Well, I left school and studied agriculture, which doesn't seem to have much to do ah, with it. Ah, so did I. Um, <laughs> there we go. So. Um, got a bit fed up with getting up at um, four in the morning, so I went and joined Sandhurst, where they let me sleep until six. Um, <laughs> and uh, actually my aim was i was going to do a few years in the army as a young officer and then i wanted to go back into estate management but i enjoyed the army so much and they kept dangling another little carrot so i ended up staying and um i've probably overstayed my welcome now i should have retired a few years ago but the army's a bit short of people these days mm. so <laughs> they've kept me on um i i've served all over the place my background was in logistics um i served in northern ireland Uh, Twice really, but one uh, full time uh, service in Northern Ireland. I did an infantry uh, attachment there with the Green Howards in Northern Ireland in Belfast in the 80s when it was pretty Mm. hairy. Um, um, I've served in, I've I've exercised and been in places all over the world, um, but I served in Bosnia and Kosovo um, and then in Iraq in 2005. Six, which was about the time of the first elections in Iraq, mm. um, again, quite a hairy time. I was the commander of the whole of the the logistic command um, in the Middle East, and uh, that was a fascinating time that for sounds me. like
0: a really big task the whole of the middle East
1: well it was yeah, it was a huge command, mm. about two thousand four hundred troops of all kinds of the support areas, from a field hospital right through to royal engineers, and in fact a, a battalion of Infantry who were guarding what we call the rear area. Right. So yeah, it was an interesting time. Great, and I just want one
0: further question, really, about today. Um, it's you, know, you, you, I'm sure, are familiar. Uh, we we do this every year. What's what's special about this year? What does it mean for you, and particularly as a Christian, uh, a follower of Jesus? What does today mean
1: for you? Um, well, it's difficult to say things that haven't already been said, I guess, but uh, remembrance for me, uh, I, I think the First World War still fills me with, um, a, as we look back and learn more about that, obviously never having experienced it, the horror of it and the, the sort of industrialised slaughter of the First World War is, um, is very poignant, very extraordinary sacrifice. And um, I think for me the poppy... Um, does represent um, something it re- represents new life coming out of the mud and the blood and the horror of those first World War battlefields so the poppy I think is a very poignant reminder mm. for me mm. that there's hope um, even amongst death and, mm. and, and destruction and, uh, and of course as one goes further forward you know World War II is a little bit closer to our memory as I say my father served in World War II um, and, and then, of course, we get to the point where even in my lifetime I can remember the various conflicts that we've been involved in and even people that I've known who've been killed um, serving their, their queen and country. So for me, it is just a, a moment to pause and remember that great sacrifice that they gave. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, as a Christian, um, it is such an amazing picture of a much greater sacrifice. Hmm. Uh, And for me, that's really important.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I'm sure you'll be sticking around later and um, do talk to to John and uh, ask him more questions. Um, uh, John's going to preach shortly. I'm going to invite Roger to come up now and uh, read God's word to us. Thank you, John.
2: Our reading this morning is from... John's Gospel, chapter 12, and if you'd like to follow it in the church Bibles, which you will find hopefully in front of you in the pews, it is on page 1080. And we're reading John 12 from verse 20 to verse 36. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies it remains only a single seed but if it dies it produces many seeds the man who loves his wife will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life whoever serves me must follow me And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now, my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself. From them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Can I say, first of all, that um, at the back, as the entrance, when you go out, <clears throat> there's a small table there with um, a number of um, small New Testaments and Bibles, um, military Bibles produced by the Naval Military Bible Society. Uh, and some other booklets, anybody would like to take one, either for themselves or to give away, then please do that. If you want to leave a little contribution in the mug, then that's up to you. Uh, Just be be careful if you read them in the garden, because they uh, tend to disappear. But uh, you'd be very welcome to have those. Very truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. Well, friends, it is a real honour to be asked to bring God's word to you this morning here at St. John the Evangelist, especially on this 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 100 years after armistice. And in doing so, I speak to you very much as a layman. Uh, Indeed, some of you may think it's rather strange to see a military uniform, as it were, in the pulpit, but I hope that you will understand that I speak to you this morning uh, not only as a representative of those who've served their country in times of conflict on this Remembrance Sunday, but also as a Christian uh, for whom the Word of God is a living and active sword uh, to be wielded certainly with great care, if not, in my case, with much expertise. But as we come to God's word, let's just bow our heads and pray, shall we? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together, to remember, to hear your word. We pray, O Lord, by your spirit, that you would open our blind eyes that we may see, that you'd open our ears that we may hear that you would speak to our hearts and change us from the inside out. Lord, we ask that you would greatly bless us, that we would know your presence with us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a few years ago, um, some of you may remember it, there appeared in the newspapers uh, a picture of a 19-year-old young soldier, private soldier, Private Curtis Wellsby. Uh, of the Mercian Regiment, um, who'd returned homely, home safely after a seven-month tour in Afghanistan, holding a 100-year-old copy of a little New Testament like this one here, printed in 1916. Uh, only his had been held by his great-great-grandfather in World War I, who had carried it in his pocket throughout that conflict. It had then been handed on to his great-grandfather who took it to World War II and served right throughout that uh, four-year conflict. It was then taken um, by his grandfather to Korea. Um, It uh, it went through battles in Korea and his grandfather was then captured uh, and it spent time with him in a prisoner of war camp in dire circumstances in Korea. It was then taken by his father to Northern Ireland At the height of the Troubles, again in his pocket carried right the way through and Private Wellsby had been given it by his grandmother and he took it with him to Afghanistan and he told how it became a bit of a talisman uh, amongst his section um, who always wanted to make sure that he had his New Testament with him when they went out on patrol. It was his constant companion. And when Private Curtis's friend was killed in action, very sadly, in Afghanistan, it was to his little New Testament that he turned. Finding comfort from the words in Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I've no idea how much that little book was actually read or what strength and comfort it gave to those soldiers who carried it. For just over 100 years, that little New Testament represented a door of hope into a spiritual reality. Carried through the blood, the mud and the mire of the Western Front into the horrors of World War II, through the privations of a Korean prisoner of war camp, to the bitter sectarianism of Northern Ireland, and more recently, to a bloody insurgency in Afghanistan. It's a testimony, isn't it, to several generations of brave young men caught up in 100 years of human conflict, bloodshed, untold suffering... And indeed, terrible evil. You know, we don't seek in any way to glorify war on Remembrance Sunday. In his New Testament letter, James writes What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet. But you cannot have what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And that was just written to the church. Perhaps nothing so starkly reveals the glory and the garbage of human nature than the terrible realities of war. It reveals a depth of depravity and evil that is present in humanity, which is shocking but it also produces amazing stories of great courage, discipline, selfless commitment, faithfulness, loyalty and love. Those human traits that seem to transcend a natural explanation and be a, a, an imprint or a pale reflection of our creator. And so it's with the usual mix of emotions that we gather here this morning to remember and honour those who gave their lives in two world wars and subsequent conflicts to protect their loved ones, to serve their country and to win the democratic freedoms, however imperfect, that we hold so dear today. I saw on the TV this past week uh, a group of school children Uh, on a battlefield visit in France being interviewed and uh, as they stood near to the grave of a young soldier aged only 15 expressing their horror at someone their own age sacrificing so much. One of them read a poem of Wilfred Owen who died in the very last week of that terrible war. Perhaps we wonder at the waste of life, the futility of war, the apparent pointlessness of it all. But in our reading today, Jesus predicts his own death. And he reminds us that it is necessary for a seed to fall to the ground and to die in order for new life to begin and many more seeds to be produced. There's a saying, isn't there, that from little acorns, great oaks can grow. You see self-sacrifice for the greater good can be necessary and even noble and so deep down we can't help but be humbled by those who suffered so much and sacrificed everything for our freedom. Surely it should make us value our largely peaceful democracy, our human rights and the freedoms that we so easily take for granted, because they were bought at a great price. Some people say that over the last 100 years we've become more individualistic, emphasising the rights of the individual, perhaps at the expense of the common good. I'm not sure if that's entirely true, or altogether a bad thing, because Every individual has great value in the sight of God. But there's something compelling, isn't there, about the spirit of commitment and self-sacrifice that permeates still today our armed forces, where huge discomfort and, of course, great risk to life and limb are accepted for the greater good of a soldier's mates and unit and ultimately for the greater good of queen and country. But perhaps we need to remember, too, that sacrificial love is at the heart of the Christian message. Only the wonder is that it comes from the very heart of God himself. Maybe a hundred years on from the end of the war to end all wars, our cynical, naturalistic society could pause and ask the question once again. What if there is a God and he's not silent and he's sacrificed himself out of love for a broken and damaged world, full of humans like you and me, made in his image but marred and corrupted by evil? What if this sacrifice, motivated by love, is the only way that evil can be obliterated? Justice done, death defeated and hope restored. In our reading, read so beautifully for us this morning from John's Gospel, some Greek worshippers at the Jewish religious festival come up and ask for an audience with Jesus. Clearly they're intrigued and they want to meet him. Perhaps they want to ask some big questions of this teacher, this healer, this potential revolutionary. Their request to meet Jesus, is passed from disciple to disciple until it reaches Jesus. And then comes that extraordinary reply in verse 23, in which Jesus, instead of inviting them in, predicts his own death. And more than that, he predicts that his time has come. A time for judgment, a time for a a spiritual battle with the forces of evil. A time when his death will then be the means for drawing all peoples of the world to himself. Indeed, it's the only way that much of the world will see Jesus. In a way, it's a sort of eve of battle speech, isn't it? The Greeks come to Jesus as outsiders, wanting to meet and talk. But Jesus knows that his hour has come. Time is short And there's no turning back. There's no other option. Love compels him to die. He must act now to save his people and defeat the powers of darkness. Like soldiers who know the realities and horrors of battle, Jesus knows what lies ahead. And we read that his soul was troubled. Should he ask to be saved from this ordeal? No. For it's the reason he has come. It's the purpose for which he has entered the world. And what's that purpose, that mission? It was to redeem, restore, and renew a broken and sinful world. We come here today, this morning, to remember those who paid the ultimate price in situations of human conflict. But sadly, as we read our newspapers or watch our screens, we continue to see deep divisions, injustices, bloodshed, poverty, starvation. We see cruelty, inequality and prejudice caused by greed and lust and pride on behalf of men and women like you and me. A few years ago, um, at the height of the Afghanistan conflict, Uh, We got a a letter from a chaplain um, serving out in Afghanistan, and he wrote to us after visiting a forward operating base uh, in Afghanistan. He probably flew in by helicopter, like uh, with our helicopter pilot here. And he landed in the forward operating base, and this is what he wrote. And I'll read it to you. Of most note, a staff sergeant and his troop were having daily Bible studies with their combat Bibles. None of them would profess to be Christians. He simply told me we'd run out of things to read and I just gathered the guys around and read a little bit from the Bible and we all just talked about what it meant. They continued to do this daily until the staff sergeant left. You know, I think that's a fascinating picture, don't you? A bunch of soldiers cooped up in a remote forward operating base, faced with danger and hardship sometimes with boredom, thinking about the big issues of life and death, good and evil, family, friends, love, decide to read the Bible together and discuss what they find. I don't know how far they got, but I wonder if they found that bit in Luke's Gospel where some soldiers ask Jesus what they should be doing and he tells them to treat people fairly and be content with their wages i rather like that because my job at the moment is setting soldiers' wages. (laughs) Or perhaps they reached that well-known bit in John's Gospel, chapter 15. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. As soldiers on active duty gathered together in adversity, I think they would have identified with that, don't you? Perhaps they read on a few more pages to the crucifixion of Jesus, where a hard-bitten Roman centurion, a professional soldier, an officer, probably equivalent to a captain or a major in today's army, who had doubtless seen many cruel deaths in his time, exclaims in wonder, Surely this man was the Son of God. I wonder what they made of that. What sort of discussion would they have had if they got a bit further on into Paul's letter to the Romans and read into chapter 5? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think service personnel, confronted with the realities of life and death, might just begin to understand. See, this is our God, who made human beings in his own image, but with free will to choose good or evil. Because love, as you know, cannot be coerced. And evil, having entered the world and marred the creation, demands a sacrifice. A sacrifice of love for those who deserve it least. People like us, selfish, greedy, proud, unfaithful, angry, unforgiving. People who've messed up in so many ways. And so God himself comes in the person of Jesus Christ and enters our world to demonstrate perfect love and obedience, to show his authority over creation, sickness, evil, to quench our spiritual thirst and then, and then is betrayed by a friend before suffering and dying a cruel death on a Roman cross. So taking our place, bearing our sins, paying the price, loving us, even as he dies earlier this year I uh, read a a story in the newspaper um, about a brave mother who died a few days after giving birth to her son shortly after becoming pregnant uh, she had been diagnosed with an aggressive brain tumour but she refused cancer treatment so that her own baby would not be harmed Two weeks after giving birth, she died, having sacrificed her own life so that her child would live. For her, there was no other way. Some might question her decision, but no one can question her sacrificial love. See, that love cost her everything. I remember a while back on a battlefield visit uh, to Italy... I stood amongst the war graves at the cemetery at Monte Cassino in Italy. Row after row after row of white stones etched with a simple cross bearing the names of young men, mostly under 30, who died in that awful battle. And it's no wonder, isn't it, that the cross, that symbol of human cruelty, has become such a reminder. Of the ultimate sacrifice. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, writes the Apostle John as he encourages us to respond. Um, the late John Stott, in his book The Cross of Christ, quotes a playlet called The Long Silence. It depicts a scene at the end of time when millions are gathered on the great plain before God's throne and most shrank before the brilliant light but some groups talked belligerently. How can God judge us? What does he know about suffering? A young lady rips open her sleeve to show the tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In a number group a negro boy lowers his collar and shows the ugly rope burn lynched for no other crime than being black others across the plain begin to agree for each has a complaint against god for the evil and suffering he permitted in the world each of the groups send forward their represent- representatives chosen because he had suffered the most a jew a slave A person from Hiroshima, a deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. They consulted together and at last they were ready to present their case. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that he should be sentenced, God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be questioned. Give him a difficult work so that even his family doubt him. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At last, let him see what it's like to be terribly alone. Then let him die so that there can be no doubt. Let there be a host of witnesses to verify it. Each leader announced the portion of the sentence, accompanied by murmurs of approval from the throngs of people. When the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved, for suddenly all knew that God had served his sentence. So as we remember and honour the sacrifice of the fallen in two world wars and the conflicts that have followed, surely it raises a question in our minds. Just who are we? Are we just an accident Just an insignificant cluster of cells on the edge of a vast, pitiless universe? Are we strangely moral creatures in an amoral universe? I heard a popular writer on the radio the other day saying just that. This is it. There's nothing beyond. Make the most of it while you're here, because this is your lot. Is that what you think this morning? Perhaps you'd like us to end with John Lennon's popular hymn. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living life in peace. (laughs) I don't think so, do you? Maybe living without hope, without meaning, without forgiveness never knowing the true peace of mind and soul that is found by trusting in Jesus. Our passage this morning ends with Jesus pleading with the cloud to believe in the light and become children of light before darkness overtakes them. Jesus says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. And that's all that's asked of us, that we believe and trust in what Jesus, the Son of God, has done for us already, as he identified with our suffering, carried our guilt and conquered death itself so that we might live. That little book, carried by four generations of the Wellsbys through a hundred years of conflict, represents a message of real hope in the face of despair and light for those in spiritual darkness perhaps this morning as we remember we might also believe in the one who said just a chapter earlier I am the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will live even though they die Why don't you come this morning, come just as you are, come with your baggage, come with your unbelief, with your doubts and your fears, come and trust and believe in the one who is the resurrection and the life. Amen.